You're listening to Amplify Women on X-Ray FM. In celebration of International Women's Day, we're hosting 12 hours of women-focused programming, amplifying women's voices and providing intersectional education on a diverse range of issues impacting women in Portland and beyond. Today, we'll be hearing from some of Portland's most impactful community leaders, educators, activists, artists, and professionals tell their stories to educate, empower, and inspire change. Keep listening from now until 7 p.m. for X-Ray FM's annual Amplify Women. We have an interview. We have someone amazing on the line. Family Forward is an Oregon nonprofit focused on advocacy, education, and organizing to ensure workplaces support families in Oregon. Today we are joined by co-founder and executive director Andrea Peluso to discuss the work of Family Forward and ways to get engaged. Thanks for joining us, Andrea. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Good morning. Did you woke, wake up with hope today, Andrea? <laughs> I wish I could say that I did, <laughs> but uh, but it's hard, it's a little hard to to find a lot of hope these days. Well, tell us why did you launch Family Forward? Well. Um, about 12 years ago or so, um, I connected with a, a couple of other mothers locally. Um, all of us had kind of been struggling as, our, as we started our kind of journey into motherhood with um, a, a lot of different issues related to workplace discrimination or the high cost of child care, um, not having leave from work for sick time or maternity leave or a variety of other things. Um, and, you know, we started to feel like we should organize around this, that this is something that needed to change. Um, we started doing some research, and there were a lot of organizations focused on um, organizing mothers and caregivers in other states, but not really in Oregon. Um, and so we came together and decided to see if we could do something about it. So what's, what's your vision? Speak to a little bit more to sort of when your work is done, how will women and families in Oregon sort of experience the day-to-day? What, what will be different? Yeah, you know, I think our, our theory of the problem at this point is really about the fact that um, in our kind of dominant culture in the United States, um, which is a dominant white supremacist and patriarchal culture um, and very heteronormative culture, um, that we really don't value care or caregiving. And um, so you see that manifest in a lot of different ways. You know, there's this expectation that all care work is going to be done for low pay or no pay um, by mostly women in paid care fields. It's mostly by women of color in you know, child care and home care fields. So kind of across the board, whether it's a paid job or unpaid family care, it's um, been made really invisible. Um, it's essential to the economy. It's essential to communities. It's essential to our families. Um, but it is something that is, you know, expected to be done invisibly and for, for no money. Um, and that that at its, at its core has a long history in this country that, you know, we think comes very directly from um, institutionalized racism and sexism and heteronormativity and classism. And um, as a result, you end up seeing, you know, people who are experiencing those kinds of institutional oppressions really struggling um, in our larger economy, um, in their ability to provide for their family and care for their family at the same time. Um, so with that in mind, we work a lot to organize mothers and caregivers in different parts of the state to just think about that together and understand those systems together and understand that, you know, that us struggling under them isn't our fault individually, which I think a lot of women have internalized, that, you know, I'm struggling to find affordable childcare. 
um, I should have chosen things differently and maybe my circumstance would be better. And when we get together in groups and talk it through, what we start to understand is that we're all struggling in many of the same ways. And it isn't something that I can choose my way out of. It's something where we need to build different systems. Like the system is getting the outcomes it's designed to get right now. And if we want people to be well cared for and kids to be well cared for and our, our elders to be able to age with dignity and for caregivers to be valued in our community, then we need to change the systems we're working in. And so uh, how, do you, how, does your, how does Family Forward interface with the, uh, the choice community? Because I know a lot of work around family is family planning. Um, and ensuring that women can have what they need. And as we were listening to some conversation this morning about what the Supreme Court is doing as far as blocking the rights of women, I'm curious on a local level how that interface works. Yeah, I think we we definitely see um, our work around care and caregiving as, as reproductive justice work, which includes being able to have choices about when and whether to become a parent, um, but extends into sort of the choices that we get to make as parents um, and the systems that we get to raise our kids in. Um, so I think we're very connected to the, the you know, reproductive health care and choice movements in Oregon, and we're part of the coalition that worked on the Reproductive Health Equity Act at the state level, and we see all those things as really essential parts of supporting parents and caregivers. Are there other communities in the country or beyond globally that have achieved parts of the vision that you hold for Family Forward that you're learning from or are inspired by? Yeah. You know, um, a lot. <laughs> most other countries are quite a bit further ahead on some of the policies that support um, families and family caregiving than the United States is. Um, the United States is particularly far behind, especially given our relative wealth. Um, but yeah, so we, we look at models for, you know, example, we were uh, leading the, the coalition effort last over the last couple of years, but we've had success in 2019 in passing the country's now most inclusive um, paid family and medical leave insurance law. Um, so we'll have a program starting up in, in Oregon soon. And we, we did, you know, look at models in other places to inform what's worked about those kinds of models in other, you know, in other countries and what hasn't worked so well. And also in other states, because there's a number of states that went ahead of Oregon there. Um, you know, we are now looking at uh, issues around having access to high-quality, affordable child care um, and senior care, actually, and are, are really looking at um, models in other places. Um, there are some parts of child care systems in the U.S. that, you know, different states or cities may be doing a little bit better experimenting with, but for the most part, we kind of have to look abroad for models because we just haven't really invested very much anywhere in making child care affordable to families. Mm. And so in the preschool for all model, um, and I appreciate the, lo the, the local vision of it. I know it's hard to, to do it at a state level. Does the local preschool for all model include home, uh, home preschool givers as well as sort of your regular, quote unquote, regular systems? Institutional. Institu thank you. Providers. Institutional providers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. Um, you know, there's an effort that, that I've been participating uh, in with Multnomah County to, to develop the, the measure that probably will go to voters this fall. And there, there was a lot of um, attention paid because we've seen investments, you know, kind of larger investments in preschool and other places result in a consolidation of preschool services at either schools, kind of charter schools or, or elementary schools or um, child care centers, kind of preschool centers. And at sort of the 
potential harm of more um, in-home providers. Um, and so there was some intention to really make sure that we were thinking through if um, Multnomah County or, you know, this program is starting to help pay for preschool for a lot of families, in what environments would that work be, be subsidized? And, and they really, you know, have thought through alternative pathways to kind of the teaching credentials and various other things that would make it so that, you know, more in-home providers can have access to those kind of slots within their facilities too. Um, and I hope that, you know, we'll implement that if it passes with some real intention to make sure we protect that. What should listeners know about the preschool for all efforts in Multnomah County? Um, I think they should know that, um, you know, th- what, the way that we look at child care internally within our organization is it's really a system that doesn't exist right now that we need. Um, and it's bigger than preschool. Um, that's a part of it. Um, but it's something that we need from for kids 0 to 13, really. Um, and that at each age, we, we really need different things for kids and families. So we, for example, you know, saw paid family and medical leave as the beginning of a child care system. It's about other things, too, because we can also take time off to heal ourselves and take care of other family members. But, you know, newborns need their parents at home with them. And parents of newborns need to be able to be home with their, their little babies and, and not risk not being able to pay the rent. So that's the beginning. Um, and then we need a variety of different settings available that really allow for families to choose the child care environment that's best for them and best for their kids when they're infants and toddlers. When they're preschool age, they're going to step into a little bit more formal education programs, but they need a lot wrapped around that. You know, lots, oftentimes those are designed to still be more school day, more school year, um, and that's not how parents work. So they need a lot of supplemental time added to that. Um, that's also really high quality and, and supportive care. And then even when kids are in, in school, you know, a lot of parents look forward to their kids starting school and, you know, hoping that their, their child care bills will go down, and they, they do, but, um, but, you know, they still have aftercare and summer care needs that really aren't met. Um, they're not met in any kind of system-wide way. And so there's a lot of parents that start to feel a crunch around now, um, planning for three months of no school. Um, and what that's going to mean for them and for their kids and for their families. So we're hoping that all of, you know, we can experiment with more of these things at the local level. We can start funding to scale more of these things at the state level and start to weave together a system that has more continuity across these different developmental needs and ages um, that really allow parents to choose the kind of care that's best for them and that's really safe for their kids. Uh, I'm thinking, uh, is there any... I'm sure there is, but uh, what does it look like when we start to talk to public school systems about doing a zero to 18 system where it's, it is truly a community school and we start at the, um, we start at birth and and end at college and it's an entire system of before school, after school, in school care so that school behaves more like a community and not the sort of siloed pieces. Like you get to kindergarten, you know, we block out the end, we get to middle school, we block out the rest. And, and how do we create a more collective community around um, schools for, for babies until college? Yeah, I think um, there's, there, I think there are a lot of, a lot of different needs. Um, and I, I, my sense is that, you know, in talking to, to schools through kind of the preschool effort and things like that, you know, I know that there are a lot of educators and school districts that see the need for a lot of these services to be kind of wrapped around the school day. 
Um, and, you know, it feels hard, I think, to sometimes see the path from here to there. Um, it is obviously, you know, we basically have right now for, for kids zero to five an entirely kind of private school model as it were, like parents are just paying tuition, essentially, for the most part. There's a couple of state programs or federal programs that provide some subsidy or care, but there's no real public system involved in that at all. And the same kind of becomes true around most aftercare and summer care. So we've decided that there's some community benefit to providing education to kids 5 to 18 or longer in some cases um, that is subsidized through our tax dollars that we've invested in building a system around um, but, you know, it's left a lot of gaps. It's cer certainly not well enough funded even for the K-12 system that it is, but, you know, it, it's definitely left a lot of gaps and particularly gaps in early childhood. So, you know, one of the things that we talk about with legislators a lot is the fact that, like, this is an example, kind of this space in child care is an example of a real market failure. Mm -hmm. You know, child care costs more than most families can afford. And the providers who are working in childcare earn some of the lowest wages of anyone working in our state. Um, and there's no way, there's no kind of tuition model out of that. There's no private choice model out of that. At some point, it has to become a public system that is supported with public dollars. Um, that is kind of the role in government in many cases is to find these places where there's no kind of private option out of it. Um, it needs to become a, a real public system that we all start to invest in. And I think it's important for us that that be a kind of what we call a mixed delivery system. You know, a, a school-based setting or a a, a center-based setting in some cases isn't always the best choice for all families. Um, and what's important on the other side of a care system is that kids are able to reach their educational kind of potential, but also their social-emotional potential, that they're in um, environments that feel culturally safe, um, that are maybe in language for them or for their family. There's a variety of different factors that go into kind of what a family might prioritize and choose from a childcare setting that they think best enables their kids to feel really attached and well cared for. As you're, um, as we're coming up to this election season, stress aside, <laughs> are there folks, I don't know if you're at this point yet, but are there folks locally that you're looking at that are um, on board with this idea of uh, not only preschool for all, but more comprehensive thinking around how we um, care for our community's kids? Yeah, I would say um, that I, we're just, I think, at the beginning, honestly, in our, in our community here in Oregon about having this conversation. Um, and I think there's a lot of interest. Um, there's, you know, we're starting a legislative task force that we, we work to pass a bill to, to develop um, last year. Um, there's a, a task force starting this year that has some different community stakeholders and legislators involved in it that are starting to kind of look at the problem. Um, I think we're, we're so early in the conversation here that we actually need for more decision makers to become informed about what exists, what programs are out there, um, what they're meant to do, what they're actually doing. Um, most of the publicly funded programs we have in childcare at this point, you know, things like Head Start or employment-related daycare programs are partially funded. Um, so most of them aren't achieving their already fairly limited mandate. Um, you know, they're, they're means-tested. They're only for very, very low-income families, um, but, and they're only serving sometimes a fifth of the, you know, need. Um, that's out there because of their constrained funding. So, you know, I think it's really important that we have decision makers that are kind of understanding that there are very few options out there. And even the things that we have invested in, we haven't funded fully. Um, and it's left a ton of gaps and we're getting the outcomes that you would expect um, from that kind of 
uh, limited supply and, and kind of limited programs. So, you know, as we start to understand together that, you know, every single county in Oregon is what they call a child care desert, which means that we have more kids who need child care than we have providers to provide child care. Um, and that's true everywhere. And it's especially bad for the zero to three population. There's just an absolute shortage of care. So it's not even just that you can't afford it. There is not care in your county that's available to you. Um, it's, it's, it's at that scale of crisis. Um, and I hope that, that they'll continue to, to become informed about that and start to, to engage in thinking about solutions that are really going to meet us at the scale of that problem. Since, oh, here, here I am. <laughs> another, another reality in our day-to-day is a sense of homeless hopelessness with regard to creating change. You have... So many accomplishments to point to over the time that you've been with Family Forward and beyond, including paid family leave, which was a huge accomplishment. You said it was the most progressive family leave policy in the country. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So what have you learned about getting things done specifically around systems change? That is long, long term work. How do you get things done with Family Forward? Yeah, I think um, we have had a lot of great successes here, um, and I think a good part of that, there's so many elements, I think, that go into a good win, but I think some of the things that I've learned are, one, we organize mothers and caregivers, so we're really organizing into kind of leadership roles in the advocacy for this work. Um, people who are impacted by it and people who kind of understand what they need um, and can say kind of what, what they think a system that might work for them would look like. Um, and that feels really important. It feels important that we have more community ownership over the problem and the solution, that there's more people who really care about something being done that's really going to address the problem, um, and that they're kind of holding everyone accountable to that. You know, I think that we have uh, a real history in, in public policy making to kind of veer toward this kind of like incremental, we'll just do little bits over time and hope that they add up. And sometimes they do, and sometimes they really don't, because from the beginning, we make trade-offs or choices that leave people behind. Um, and I don't think we have a, a great history of going back to, to pick them up again later. So one of the things that was really important to us in our paid family and medical leave work, you know, we started from the beginning really working with our coalition partners and the moms and caregivers that, that we're organizing into this to really think about, like, who is most in need of paid family and medical leave when we kind of think about all of these different systems of oppression that we're operating within, like, who is most in need, who's least likely to have access to this program, which kinds of workers, which tend to be very low paid workers, people working in agriculture um, fields, people working in service sector jobs, people working multiple jobs, part-time jobs, all of those kinds of things. Like, what would a, a system look like that would actually serve those folks, you know, because I think you can make a lot of choices in policy, and we have, you know, over the years in Oregon that don't really think about what those people need. They kind of think about the kind of typical office worker, nine-to-five person who probably already has the kind of job that's more likely to give them benefits um, and, you know, is more easily able to navigate the systems that the state might set up because they're, you know, at a desk nine-to-five or whatever it might be. Um, so, you know, how would this system look different if we were really going to design it for the folks we think who need it most? 
Um, and we were really able to lay out a set of kind of principles around what a policy might look like that does that. And then we were able to go to lawmakers with the group of moms and caregivers who helped to, to convince folks with us and you know, various other coalition partners who were involved and really explain why these different elements of this program were so important. Um, that you know, it needed to be something that was truly available to everyone. It needed to be something that gave people sufficient time off for the purposes they were trying to take it for. Oregon's the first state to pass a paid family leave program that gives 100% wage replacement to our lowest wage earners. Um, because partial wage replacement, if you're earning minimum wage, is not tenable. You can't get by on part of minimum wage. Um, so, you know, we really advocated for a lot of different components that really led to it being very inclusive. You know, it is the first law in the country that has no exclusions for the size of employer you work for, for how many hours a week you work, um, the kind of industry that you work in, like we, we were not allowed to cover federal employees because the state can't tell the federal government what to do. But except for that, every other employee is really going to be covered by this program and I think covered well. And that was really important to us. Wow. Thank you for that. I, I think, again, we feel hopeless to create change right now with so much going on and to hear sort of your process and and how you've been able to move a really significant piece of legislation through is, is really inspiring. How can yeah, our, I would say I hope yeah. folks don't feel hopeless because yeah. I understand. I feel often hopeless looking at things happening in the federal government. But locally, there's, there's, there is a lot of interesting work happening. Mm. Um, and it is, I think, easier in our kind of local, local environments and local communities to make really big and important change and change that I think other states look to. You know, there are definitely other states now who are looking to the models that we set in paid family leave, for example, in Oregon. And so it, it, it does have a ripple effect. Um, and it does, it does impact the way other states and maybe eventually the federal government will take up some of these problems and address them. So I do, I do want, I don't want to leave folks with a feeling like, um, it, like their work doesn't matter because it absolutely matters. Um, it matters that we continue to push back against various threats to our civil rights. Um, it matters that we keep showing up and it matters that we keep pushing forward on things that we know are going to make a difference and they do. Mm. How can our listeners best support your work? Um, I think the best way to connect with us probably is to go to our website, which is um, probably best visit at familyforwardaction.org. Um, and there's various ways to sign up to become a volunteer or to join our lists, whatever folks want to do and kind of what way they want to engage. I would encourage folks if they can and, and it's something that interests them to come to some of our meetings. We have uh, monthly action team meetings um, with a lot of mothers and caregivers who attend and we start to talk together as a community about what we need and learn some advocacy skills and, and then start to practice them together. Mm. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. You too. Thanks so much. Family Forward is an Oregon nonprofit focused on advocacy, education, and organizing to ensure workplaces support families in Oregon. Big thanks to Andrea Peluso, co-founder and executive director, for joining us today.